We are so grateful that you are back with us at the Made for This podcast in 2024. It's going to be an amazing year, especially these next three months, because Jenny is going to be talking about all things emotions. And if the word emotions makes you feel something inside, this is for you. And maybe even if it doesn't, even more so, this season of the podcast coming up is for you. So... We are thrilled to announce that we finally get to give you guys the entire book, the entire book to read when you pre-order Untangle Your Emotions. This only lasts until January 31st, but you can join the launch team where we're giving epic things away like tickets to If Gathering and all kinds of your favorite gift cards. We're going to have stuff every single day. You don't want to miss it. So imagine this. You pre-order the book, so you get it in the mail on release day at their lowest price from any retailer. Then you'll get access to the entire book to read it early. Think access to the book and giveaways. That's what the launch team is. It's going to be really fun. We're doing it via text message. So come and be a part. To join the launch team and get access to the book, text the word UNTANGLE to the number 214-225-6267. Untangle to 214-225-6267. And we will tell you everything you need to know about pre-ordering and getting access to the digital book. This is Jenny Allen, and you are listening to the Made for This podcast. Guys, one of my very favorite authors, he's also my friend. That's a really fun thing I can say, that one of my favorite living authors is also my friend, John Mark Comer, is here today. And I mean it. John Mark, you write books, and I always feel this way. I get jealous. I don't feel that way when I read everybody's books, but I really feel that way with you. And I think it's because you're a kindred soul. I love the tensions you hold. I love the things you think about. I love the decisions you make of what to lead with and what to talk about. And certainly this book is no exception. I will give a shout out for Live No Lies because I think that was probably my favorite John Mark Comer book. But this one is a close second. And the reason this one is such a close second is it's so important. It's so foundational. Every person needs to read this book. So let's talk about it. I mean, hi, how you doing? I won't ask you that question today. That was so over the top. I will Venmo you $1,000 right after this for your endorsement. That was well, an unpaid endorsement, everyone. It really was because it's so sincere and legitimate. I was really coming, I don't know about. It's like one of those <laughs> after the fact, shoot. <laughs> well, you are so incredibly kind to me. I do. I think I texted you that, that I was jealous of you after this book too, because I think focusing on this is the key to everything. If you know what it means to stay on the heels of Jesus, to just follow him and to be with him and to do what he does. I mean, those are the, I just laid out the parts of the book, basically. Then you know how to live and how to parent and how to work and how to be married. You know, you know everything else. So, so let's just dive in. I mean, this is such a life message for you, right? Like this is your, this is the name of your ministry. Like this is, this is everything. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it's interesting. I was thinking about this yesterday early on, you know, 20 years ago when I was just starting teaching, early 20-something, leading a college night, I remember when people kind of asked me about my heart, I used to fumble for language and say something like, my heart is really to help Christians become disciples of Jesus. And years, I'd never read a 
word from Dallas Willard at that point in my spiritual journey. But years later, when I discovered the writings of Dallas Willard, and when I read his paragraph in one of his legendary books called The Great Omission, where he writes the greatest issue, I put this in the introduction to my book, but the greatest issue facing the world today with all its heartbreaking needs is whether those who are identified as Christians will become disciples, apprentices, yeah. practitioners of Jesus Christ. And I remember when I read that, I remember that page, you know, the highlighter in my right hand. Yeah. And that it just, that was, it was like a leap, you know, deep calls to deep. Yes, that is my heart. And I think part of it's, you know, you and I share that heart because we're born at such a unique time in church history where there's this bizarre through a historical mishmap of confluence of, you know, streams and factors, bizarre reality where we live in, where in America, at least in evangelicalism for the last few decades, it is possible to be a Christian without actually being a follower or apprentice of Jesus. Now, that's certainly not a Jesus mindset or a New Testament mindset, but that is kind of the American ethos. And so it stands to reason that you and I would have a, a heart, a burning heart to close that gap. Yeah. When was that gap closed for you? Well, I don't think it's closed. I think it's a lifelong. I think discipleship is a lifelong process of saying yes to Jesus, closing that gap, you know, between what you identify well, then let me as rephrase. and you When was are. that flag raised for you in your personal life where you really thought to yourself, I've got to learn the way of Jesus, not just I'm a Christian? You know, I think for, so, I'm not sure if there was a moment. I think part of it has been the political polarization that has marked really most of my lifetime and in particular the last, you know, five or 10 years. And just a level of, I've always been shocked by the behavior of people who identify as Christians on both the left and the right that is so profoundly unchristian. And so it clicked for me when I came across, and I put some of this data in the book, you know, every year the number of Americans that identify as Christians goes down, but it's still staggeringly high. It's like 68% was the most recent study I could find as of our final edit of the book. And now obviously in LA where I live, that number is probably 2% or something. So that I, I can't fathom a world where it's 68%. But there are you've other parts. Ne you've of the never country. lived in that world, have you? I've never lived in that world. I mean, Silicon Valley to Portland to LA. It's like I read right. those stats and I'm like, what are you talking about? And then I'll go to parts right. of the South. I'm like, oh, I get it. This it, makes sense. They're all here. They're all in they're Texas. They're all here. They're all in <laughs> Dallas. And and uh so which is which is just lovely. So that's not it's certainly not my world, but that is the American landscape. And then mm -hmm. I came across a number of different studies. That into and it's trying to measure somebody's level of spiritual devotion is really, really tricky. You know, you can't really yeah. get at that. But there are questions you can ask. And the best estimate of the number of Americans that are actually following Jesus, like really serious about discipleship to Jesus. And I'm not talking about like the next Mother Teresa. I'm just talking about, you know, a lot of the people listening to this podcast, people that are really serious who want to follow Jesus is, you know, they estimate around 4%. And that bizarre wow. kind of gap, 68%, 4%, explains so many things from deconstruction to church scandals to political polarization to ideological idolatry on both sides. It all lives in that you know gap between 68% and 4%. So I opened the book with a qu another quote from Willard. I found, essentially, he says, 
There is no problem on human earth for which the solution is not apprenticeship to Jesus. Right. And uh, it's such a staggering claim. Like yeah. he's a very much a thinker of nuance. And it's like there's not a lot of nuance in that claim. But if you think about it, I mean, name your disaster of choice we're facing right now, internal or external, really the solution would be solved by a life of apprenticeship to Jesus. Let's talk about apprenticeship because that is not the phrase many of us use, and yet it is throughout your book. Talk about why that word. Yeah. So I use that word for a couple of different reasons. One is just, um, I think it's the best English translation. So as you know, the word used in Greek is mathetes. That literally means a learner, but it's normally not translated learner in particular because then we would import our kind of modern Western educational system into. So we think of learning as I listen to a podcast or I read a book or I go to class and I sit through a lecture and take notes. And that's not the model of learning that was in Jesus' world that was much more holistic and body-based and relational and apprenticeship-based. So, um, you know, this word mathetes that is mostly translated as disciple in English translations of the Bible, which is a great translation. It's just not a word we use much outside of Christian culture. And the danger then is often we import our own kind of contorted meanings into it. So you can translate it disciple or follower or learner or student, but a number of Greek scholars think the best word to translate it is apprentice because um, there's a whole backstory. And I did not realize this, that Jesus did not invent discipleship, which is pretty obvious in the New Testament because lots of other people have disciples. John the Baptist has disciples. The Pharisees Mm -hmm. have disciples. Paul was a disciple of Gamaliel before he became a disciple of Jesus. So discipleship was actually part of the first century world. It was actually a formal part of their educational system. And it was the upper echelon. So it was the equivalent in our world of like a PhD program at Harvard or a postdoctoral fellowship at, you know, Oxford or Cambridge. It was like the uber elite level of education that almost nobody could get into. But unlike a class-based or a classroom-based model of learning, Western model of learning, it was literally life-based. You would follow a rabbi around Israel from village to village, walk behind him, learn from him. And he would teach, but you'd also just do life with him and learn from him, not just about the Torah or the scriptures, but about how to be, how to be a human being in God's good world. So I think apprentice just captures up a better kind of mental model of what it means to learn from Jesus and disciple under Jesus. And then the other word reason I use it is because evangelicals use discipleship to mean something different than what I think it means in the New Testament. They use it to mean a couple of different things. Um, Mostly they mean mentorship fire, like, Mm -hmm. hey, Jenny's going to disciple these three girls, which means you're going to meet with them once a week and go through a book or whatever and mentor them, which is a beautiful, absolutely fantastic thing. Or sometimes people mean leadership development. So that's when you hear people, this is famous book, Master's Plan of Evangelism, And, you know, the thought is basically, hey, Jesus had 12 people that he poured into and then he released them in the world. You should have your people you pour into and you release them in the world. But that confuses apostleship with discipleship. Jesus had way more than 12 disciples. He had female disciples, which we have no example of a single rabbi anywhere in the ancient world ever having a female disciple. Jesus had female disciples like Mary and Martha and others. And he had at least, you know, 70 early on in his ministry that he sent out. So right. the 12 were like a subgroup of his wider group of disciples. 
So again, I'm all for mentorship. I'm all for leadership development. But I think discipleship in the New Testament, in the Gospels, is a whole life of apprenticeship to Jesus, where your life is organized around these three basic goals of being with Jesus for the purpose of becoming like Jesus, with the end goal of eventually learning to say and do all the kinds of things he said and did. Well, and I love how simple that is because we do tend to really complicate this. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should at least be simple. That's why for the last year and a half, I've been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel energized and focused, ready to take on the day. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. I know with AG1, I'm getting my essential brain, gut, and immune health support. I like to think of it like nutritional insurance. If there's one product we had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1. And that's why we've partnered with them for so long. So if you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3K2 and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash made for this. That's drinkag1.com slash made for this. Check it out. This was a big question I had from your book. Yes. You know, you're right. I think of discipleship as one-on-one or one-on-four people teaching them the Bible, teaching them the ways of Jesus. How would you say you learn the ways of Jesus? I think what's right about that, uh, just to clarify, I'm all for you and four ladies sitting in your living room. I'm a thousand percent for it. I just think (laughs) we should maybe call it something different. Um, Yeah. I mean, I think you learn the ways of Jesus through, okay, I don't want to get too technical here, but the, the work I'm doing with Practicing the Way, not the book, but our organization where we're creating discipleship resources for communities follows a basic four-part kind of learning model. So four steps. Step one would be learning new kind of mental models. So that could happen through listening to a podcast like this um, and hearing, oh, wow, like what does discipleship mean? And maybe that's remapping my, you know, interpretation of the word disciple. It could happen through a sermon or a teaching or going to if gathering or reading Untangle Your Emotions or Practicing the Way, or it could happen from going through a class at a seminary or listening to Bible project resources. So you're learning new mental models, but that's where it's tragically so many discipleship models stop. And this is the fatal flaw in evangelicalism. Evangelicalism is built on the the post-enlightenment, if you want to get technical assumption, that as a person's knowledge of the Bible increases, their spiritual maturity will increase along with it. Mm. Preach. Like the whole thing is built on that assumption. And I would right. argue it is at best wildly uh, insufficient, if not off. And I think uh, the truth is closer to early in the spiritual journey, there is a high correlation between growth in biblical knowledge and growth in spiritual maturity. But you fairly early on in the journey of spiritual formation, which is just code for becoming a person who's like Jesus over your lifetime, early on that correlation begins to decrease. Meaning Mm -hmm. at this point, I'm 43 years old. 
the problems that I'm solving for, the areas in my life where I am very unchristian, I am not like Jesus, where I, uh, my anxiety, my uh, generational sin of anger in my family, my chronic perfectionism, where I can be controlling with my kids and vacuum my house four times a day, my sarcasm, where my contempt and anger will, I'm not hitting people or punching holes in the wall. I would never yell at my wife but I would make little sarcastic digs, snide comments when I'm frustrated and she's late or something was messy. And like, it just leaks out, un-Christ-like, unloving behavior leaks out of me. At this point in my journey, a phenomenal exegetical sermon series by N.T. Wright through the book of Romans is (laughs) a wonderful thing, but it's probably not going to fix that problem. Amen, amen, amen. Yes. And hearing great sermons about yep. how Christ-like people are gentle and patient and kind is a wonderful right. aspirational thing. But uh, my problem is not that I don't know what Jesus wants me to be like with my wife and kids. My problem is not that I don't want to be like that. I deeply, my deepest desire is to become right. a person who is marked by the fruit of the spirit, loving, joyful, peaceful, gentle. My problem is what Paul calls the body of death. You know, like this stinking body. My nervous system itself is broken and in need of the healing and salvation of Jesus. So more Bible study, which I read scripture every single day. This is not, this is not a, this, I'm not trying to lower our view of the Bible. I'm trying to round out our view of discipleship. So step one is learning from scripture and teachers of the way of Jesus, new mental models about like a vision of life in the kingdom of God. But that can only be step one of four. Step two in my mind is practice or experience. So then you need to somehow get that that truth, that mental model from your brain, not just into your emotions and your feelings. Yes, that, but into like the central nervous system, into your body, into your what we would call muscle memory. And so we can do that through spiritual disciplines or practices. For example, you can take the idea of trust in God and you can attempt to habituate that into your body through the spiritual discipline of Sabbath. That is a great, it's literally a whole day of saying, okay, God, you run the world for 24 hours and we'll see how if gathering does and practicing the way it does. And I'm going to trust you. And this is a way of practicing yep. trust in God to actually habituated into my body, or you can take an idea like a command, like do not worry. And you can, I don't have the ability to not worry yet, but I do have the ability to practice Sabbath or practice morning Mm. prayer. So through practices or just experiences, it may just be some kind of an emotional experience or relational experience or a retreat or a deep act of healing with a therapist or a spiritual friend or spiritual director. You need to do something somehow that mental model needs to, you need to have some kind of an encounter experience thing, practice or encountering your body. Then step three is reflection. So this um, is where I maybe put too much emphasis on this, but a professor I had many years ago on Ignatian spirituality named Trevor Hudson, South African teacher and writer, he once said in teaching on the Ignatian practice of examine, we don't change from our experience. We change when we reflect on our experience. And, you know, Kurt Thompson that I think you've done work with, he has a lot of good stuff on this recently on interpersonal mm-hmm. neurobiology and how we have to, if we have a healing experience, we have to spend a lot of time in reflection on it. So yes. he has people like journal, this journal the experience twice a day yes. for seven days, just trying to like get it deeper into your body. 
And then our right. fourth step is processing together in community. And the dream yep. is that our community is not just peers. There's a Jenny Allen sitting in the room. There's a sage, a mentor, a pastor, yeah. a spiritual director, a mother, a father. And we have to, and again, Kurt Thompson's work has been really helpful. I think he would say if he was here that at a, just a neurobiological level, we need another person's brain to help in order for our brain to make sense of our own story and experience, which is central to what psychologists call integration, what mm. we Christians would just call spiritual maturity, you know? So that's kind of our four-step model is learn, practice, reflect, processing community. And this is why I love John Mark Comer, people, because here's the deal. This is a little bit busting up the way the church has talked about discipleship always. And I've known in my guts that this is not enough. And so naturally, when I'm leading people, when I'm discipling people, I'm getting them into an experiential moment. I'm trying to get them into practicing, not just thinking. So I've known that in my gut, but you've organized it into a way that people can think about it differently, where I've just felt it in my bones. And mm -hmm. so I'm kind of just yelling inside the whole time you're talking because <laughs> we do, we have, we have really simplified, the church largely in the West has simplified discipleship down to knowledge. And that is not enough, as we all know. And it feels so obvious to me, but we aren't changing it. And so I cannot tell you how much I'm grateful for just that work of building systems and clarity around something I just knew was wrong. So when I think about those four things, I could feel overwhelmed. Like the first part felt really simple, you know, being with Jesus, becoming like Jesus, doing what Jesus did. This one, I feel like you're asking me to go to a monastery. I feel like you're asking me to, <laughs> to like wander in the desert like Jesus did. Like what do you see it look like for the average person in your church, in your personal life? Like what, what does their life look like? Their rhythms, their time, their, how does it, how is it different? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think eh, that's, I'm really happy you brought that up. You know, a major theme in my life and work that is, I think, contextualized to our time and place in history is, which is different than other times and other places in history. I think I write in the book that one way to think about discipleship in the modern era is as a disciplined attempt to slow your life down and mm -hmm. simplify it around the three goals of an apprentice of Jesus, be with him, become like him, do as he did. So I write, the invitation of Jesus is not to do more, but to do less. It's not yeah. to addition, but to subtraction. It's not to increasing complexity, but to pursuing simplicity. And that's, that's the rub with the Christian versus disciple moment we're in. You can't, discipleship to Jesus doesn't work as like an add-on to your already over busy, maxed out, exhausted, stressed out, consumeristic, highly individualistic, materialistic, career driven American quote way of life. It's a different way of life. It's not one more thing on top of your way of life. And that's the hard call. And that's why Jesus was like, Jesus, for Jesus, the entry point to the kingdom of God, to discipleship, was take up your cross. This right. evocative metaphor leave everything. for yeah. death, leave everything behind. And he would tell parables like, you know, the, the treasure buried in the field and, you know, and, and it's so interesting, you know, Bonhoeffer was saying this, some people date the whole spiritual formation movement in the Western church, not to Willard and Richard Foster, but to Bonhoeffer and, you know, Bonhoeffer, his whole thing on cheap grace, he would basically say, where in the world did 
Protestant evangelicals start saying that, you know, grace is free, that, you know, the gospel is free. Like Jesus, when Jesus used financial metaphors for salvation, he did not say it was free. He said it was going to cost you everything, but you would get back a million times more than you give up. So in his metaphor of the treasure buried in the field, you have to sell everything to buy the field. And then, you know, it'd be like if right now I had to sell my house, give up all of my retirement, give up, sell every single thing I own, the, the clothes off my back in order to buy a piece of land up the road. But that piece of land has $100 billion buried in it. And I get that adding gold or whatever. I mean, that's the that's the word picture. It still costs me everything, but it's grace is you're just getting more than you could possibly ever even imagine. So there is, you know, what Bonhoeffer called the cost of discipleship. So that's the like bad news. The good news is that when you actually take up your cross, you sell everything, you buy the field, pick your word picture, you discover that the burden is easy. And mm -hmm. the yoke is light. Yeah, in the words it gets easier. And yeah. actually, you know, I put this at the end of the book. Willard kind of played with Bonhoeffer's whole the cost of discipleship thing. It's going to cost you to follow Jesus. And he said, yeah, but you have to also realize it's going to cost you more not to follow Jesus. So most people are already unhappy, stressed out, exhausted, right. discontent, feeling a lack of integration, feeling lonely. And they're like, oh, it's too much to follow Jesus. You want me to do like morning prayer and practice Sabbath and live in community? I'm like, whoa, 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 back up the train. I guarantee your life will be better, not worse, if you, you know, take up your cross and follow Jesus. So you have to weigh the pros and cons of what it will cost you to be a Christian, but not be a disciple of Jesus, to not surrender your whole life to Jesus. I think that will cost you a thousand times more. Right. And most of the cost in this era of discipleship to Jesus is a cost of FOMO, of missing out, of not living the normal, digitally distracted, over busy. It might be a cost and you might make less money, you might have less prestige, all of which turns out to be absolutely empty and vapid and more stress inducing. And so there is a cost, but the good news is, I think, and I think I'm stumbling here, Jenny, to name this in a compelling way, the invitation of Jesus is not to more on top of your already maxed out life. Right. It's, hey, breathe, slow down, reorder your life around what matters most. And once you discover that, like Mary, sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening for his word turns out to be the most peaceful, joyful, life-giving hmm. experience of eternity and time. And once you discover that a deeply relational life with other followers of Jesus, not just attending church in a crowd, which is great, but sitting around a table and doing deep life and bearing one another's burdens and sharing your souls with another and drawing on the wisdom of those ahead of us in the journey, once you discover that we're deeply relational mean, beings created by a deeply relational God for a deeply relational spirituality that is free, that doesn't cost money, that you know, doesn't require success, doesn't require an IQ, it just requires vulnerability and faithfulness and time and attention. Once you discover the life of what a slower, simpler life of discipleship to Jesus and community is like, I mean, you laugh at your previous selves like, I don't know if I can give that up. It's so true. He knows this is the way to live because it's the best. I mean, he, he made us. 
couldn't wait to tell you guys about Olive and June's tab press-on system. I don't have the time or the money to go to the salon, and so what I love about Olive and June is that they have made a great manicure easy and accessible. With Olive and June's tab press-on system, you get everything you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. They are so easy to put on the tabs, and they're non-damaging, non-toxic, and they look real. Olive and June manicures are so much cheaper than the ones you get at a salon. And personally, I think they look better. And listen, here's the colors and styles that I got because I love a good neutral nail. So I always go for the extra short round and I love the point, which is like a ballet pink. You can get vintage, which is like a, a dusty blue color. And just to try something different, I got the tonal lavender French. They all look so natural. They're not big and bulky and they're easy to put on. And if you'd rather paint your nails, Olive and June's quick dry nail polish is legit. It lasts for five plus days, full coverage in one to two coats, and they offer them in 15 cruelty-free vegan polishes. Visit oliveandjune.com slash made for this for 20% off your first system. That's O-L-I-V-E-A-N-D-J-U-N-E dot com slash M-A-D-E-F-O-R-T-H-I-S for 20% off your first mini system. I want to close with this. You've struggled with anxiety in your life. No idea what you're talking about. No, I haven't. What? Yes, I well, have. Yeah, talk about it, John Mark. I don't know if we've ever talked about that. That kind of surprises me. That I struggle with anxiety? Yeah. I mean, maybe nothing should surprise me about the world we live on. So many of us do. I certainly do. Just talk about that in light of everything we're talking about. Because to me, that's rubber hitting the road of there's no perfect way to do this. It's it's messy. Yeah. I mean, in a ways, anxiety is a gift to me because it makes it impossible for me to live a peaceful life apart from Jesus. And there's a, a, it keeps me tethered to God in a way that I'm deeply grateful for. Jesus said, the, I mean, the first beatitude is blessed are the poor in spirit. What some call right. spiritual poverty is the foundation of a life of discipleship. If you think mm-hmm. you got, if you don't feel spiritual poverty, then why would you, you know, it's easy to give up everything when you're like, I have very little to offer, but help. You know, and I think anxiety is a great example because, you know, Jesus is very clear in his teachings on worry. Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter six, do not worry about your life. What you eat, what you'll drink, sufficient for the days is own trouble. Don't worry. Beautiful. I could spend a little time. I could offer some 30 minute exegetical sermon on that. That would help you get a better understanding of the Greek background. But at the end of the day, most of us get what that means. Most of us want to obey that. There are other commands of Jesus that it takes us a while to agree with him on around money Mm -hmm. or sex or divorce. And so it takes longer to want to obey him. But that one, most people have a felt need right from the beginning who want to obey that. The problem then is not about learning the Bible or even getting your will in the right place. It's about getting the truth of scripture from your mind into your body. And that's where small changes, without going too deep down the rabbit hole, there are two ways of approaching spiritual formation or change, direct and indirect. Small changes we can approach directly through willpower. So if I said, hey, Jenny, why don't you think about reading a psalm in the morning rather than, you know, checking Instagram first thing when you wake up, which I don't have no idea what your morning routine is. I doubt it's that. But let's imagine it was. 
you could probably, unless if you're like a digital addict, which many people are, you could probably just do that. You could hear a sermon or have a conversation and be like, all right, I'm just going to go read a psalm in the morning instead of check Instagram. That's within the realm of your willpower. But all the deep changes, like don't worry, becoming a person who trusts in God, who's okay no matter what happens to them and is free of anxiety, that is so far beyond the capacity of my willpower. <laughs> So the only way I can approach that is indirectly. And this is where evangelicalism breaks down because evangelicalism basically relies almost entirely on direct willpower, even right. though we would never say that in a sermon because that doesn't line up with our view of grace and the atonement and the work of Christ and it is finished. But when it actually comes to how you change and grow and mature, set all of the theological cliches or doctrines aside, at the end of the day, you're basically being told, here's what the Bible says, now go do it. And that works great if it is things within the realm of your willpower and you can have an emotional experience, surrender your will to Jesus and go do it. And it immediately stops working once you deal with all the deeper issues of discipleship so that are right. so far beyond the range of our willpower. So those we approach indirectly. So for one example, there are many examples of this. Uh, one example would be spiritual disciplines are an indirect way to approach change. So I, spiritual disciplines are how we do what we can do in order for God to grow and mature us That's to right. become the kind of people who can eventually do what we currently cannot do. That's so good. So yes. I can't it's not like, worry. I mean, it's a but I can Sabbath. Right. It's a it's a simple way of explaining the fruit of the Holy Spirit and abiding in Christ, right? Like you're saying you do these things and these things change about you, but they don't totally two plus two isn't equaling four. Two plus two is e equaling supernatural numbers, right? Exactly. Exactly. That's grace. That's your right. opening yourself. So there's no theological, you know, I have no theological disagreement with it's all grace. It's all the work of the Holy Spirit. I have pragmatic disagreement. How do you work that out? And we still have a part to play. And the part when people are like, it's not about what you do. It's about what God's done for you. I'm like, where is that language anywhere in the Bible? Right. And why would we make those two things enemies rather than partners? Jesus certainly asks you to do all sorts of things, starting with deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Right. And so Jesus is certainly very interested in what you do. But what we do is, you know, it's not a 50 transformation is not 50, 50. I don't know what the mathematical breakdown is, maybe 1%, 99%. I have no idea, but we have a key part to play. And the disciplines are one aspect of our part where we make space for God to do in us. what We po cannot possibly do through willpower, reading books, listening to sermons. Another example would be suffering, uh, which is not something we put into a rule of life or put on our schedule, but it's one of the most transformative things we can right. possibly go through. When we open to God in our suffering, he does things through suffering that we could never. So, so for example, what evangelicals call idols, what psychologists call attachments, what Thomas Keating called our emotional programs for happiness, whatever you want to call it. This is like the major challenge of discipleship. You get to a point where like these deep-seated emotional attachments that you have to certain things, mostly good things, you want your kids to do well or go to a nice college or not get kicked out of high school or marry a good person or you want to be healthy or you want to have a good marriage or you want people to think well of you. Not bad things, but we're deeply emotionally attached to these things. They totally. become idols in Christian language. So you can only get so free of idols or attachments 
by hearing sermons and wanting to be free of your idols and attachments. At the end of the day, the only surefire way I've found to be free of attachments is to have them taken away <laughs> taken. from me against my totally. will. <laughs> totally. And then, yep. then um, I'm like, I feel okay. it's a horrible period followed by a period of remarkable freedom and peace. And that's not something I do in my willpower. I'm no right. longer going to overly value my kids getting good grades. It's like, it just comes to you. Oh, I love this so much. This is why I love, and I talk about this way too much on this podcast, Pilgrim's Progress, because it is so the antithesis of how we think of the Christian faith preached by the world today, which is you're going to fall in a pit. You're going to get locked in a castle and you're going to have to figure out what to do. Like this is the actual Christian faith. It isn't morality and everything working out and all these good things coming to you. It is a you know what show and God helps him figure it out and he becomes a different person as he goes. And I just think that that view of the Christian faith needs to be preached and preached and preached because we get so confused by it all. We think, why are we in this pit? And it's like, because God uses the pit, because God meets you in the pit, (laughs) because the pit is is so valuable. Pilgrim's Progress was written before this kind of Western, this era of the church. It was written in an older era of the church that had a different kind of rubric like the whole thing is about spiritual journey and there's this lifelong journey and there's these pitfalls and there's these valleys and there's the slough of despond. And, you know, <laughs> it, there's not just an endless series of lectures in the Pilgrims of Progress, <laughs> you know, where he just goes through and he hears this lecture right. and this lecture and this lecture. There's like a spiritual journey involved. And that's the life of apprenticeship to Jesus or discipleship. Yes. I, I mean, I can't say enough about it all. I just love the work you're doing. And if you don't know, Practicing the Way is also a a course, or what would you call it? I don't want to give it the right name, dude. Is it an experience? Yes, our first course is coming out uh, in early spring, late March, early April. And it will be like an eight-week kind of primer. It's called the Practicing the Way course, Primer to Spiritual Formation. It's all designed to be done in community. So you could do it with your church or your small group or just a couple of friends around a table or a class, Sunday school class, whatever your church model is or life model is. And then we have nine practices that are these four-week experiences that uh, teach and train you how to integrate spiritual disciplines like Sabbath or solitude or prayer or fasting or scripture or community into your daily life with God. I love it. It's all free. I love it. Thanks, John Mark. This was awesome. text Jenny and I and we actually read your text messages and we try to respond as many as we can but it's just like such a fun way for especially you guys our podcast fam to ask questions we send out ideas and stuff for you guys all the time to vote on if you want to join get out your phone you're going to type the word podcast in the message part to the number 214-225-6267 We'll see you next time for another episode of the Made for This podcast.